Hello and welcome to Season 1 of Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we'll discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean, South American history, post-colonial literature and decolonial thoughts. If you would like to join in the discussion, please email me at jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter under the name Coloured Souls UK. today's show we're going to have a look at how illusions have been shattered from the Caribbean perspective and we're going to do that through the context of Sam Selvin's The Lonely Londoners. Debbie Dean and Tago Wilson state that The Lonely Londoners deals with the shattering of the illusion of belonging. They outline this illusion by placing it into three categories. Firstly, a material dream about the material wealth of England with well-paid work readily available. An illusion that both Moses Alouetta, the main protagonist, and Henry Oliver, or Sir Galahad, have shattered. Secondly, an illusion about the courtesy, hospitality, and human warmth of the English. An illusion characterised but not necessarily shattered by Sir Galahad's exploit. Finally, that the illusion of England involves a romantic sense of English history, and the illusion that the West Indian could participate in its history, something that can be seen in the affection shown to famous names throughout the novel. Now, as insidious as the American South's notoriously overt racism, Moses had to wade through London's covert racism with a critical view, which, in turn, forced Sir Galahad to come to terms with the flaws of his new city. Debbie Dean and Tago Wilson further state that all the dreams are painfully destroyed. While this may be true for Moses and to an extent Galahad, not all the characters suffer to such a degree. Several characters, in particular the character of Tanti, appear to enjoy their new life in England. The novel, set in 1950s London, is based upon Selvin's experiences as a member of the group of Caribbean immigrants known as the Windrush Generation, named after the MV Empire Windrush which brought them to Britain in 1948. Many had fought for Britain in the Second World War, but soon found that they couldn't settle back into their small island communities. They decided to seek the better opportunities as promised to them in the mother country. Britain first welcomed them as a source of cheap labour, but by the late 1950s, as more people entered the country, they became a target of xenophobia and racial abuse. Written using a third-person heterodiegetic perspective, the narrative voice shifts seamlessly between standard narrative and Moses' thoughts, representing his consciousness. This style of narrative allows the narrator to weave together the relatively loose thread of the characters, thus encompassing their moods and stories into an oral community. The lack of solid plot places the characters into a series of episodes which allude to traditional Trinidadian folktales and modern Western literary conventions. Selvin is then able to feature the sprawling and alien city of London into one of the novel's key characters. The closeness of the narrative perspective lends itself to the notion that The Lonely Londoners is the book that Moses would have written. Thus, this novel is a strong precursor to the decolonization of literature produced by writers from former British colonies, very much like George Lamming, Andrea Levy, Jamaica Kincaid, or John Agard, to name only a few. Selvin's work is a decolonialist assertion of black life in London which flaunts all of the accepted standards of language. He distinctly weaves Caribbean dialectic patterns into the fabric of his storytelling and joyfully revels in the episodes which corroborate the worst nightmares of his potential white bourgeois readers, that his boys are tainted by debauchery, savagery and sexual deviancy. 
Now, it's interesting to stop and think at this moment of the similarities to Taib Salih's Mustafa Saeed in Season of Migration to the North, and the idea of the male characters using white women as a symbol of revenge for the way that Britain took advantage of and used their colonies before abandoning them. Now, this parallel is no more evident than with Cap and his infamous escapades, including his sham marriage in order to gain accommodation and some quick cash, a situation that alludes to the many treaties and agreements signed between Britain and their colonies to grant them conditional independence. Throughout the novel, standard English is shunned in place of generalised Caribbean dialect for both narrator and dialogue. By employing this, Selvin is able to give the reader a sense of experiencing the familiar through an unfamiliar perspective. Selvin's innovative use of dialect and vocabulary, for example, presents the gloom of London from the very first sentence, one grim winter evening when it had a kind of unrealness about London, with a fog sleeping restlessly over the city, and the light showing in the blur as if not London at all, but some strange place on another planet. Now this sentence illustrates the rhythms of Caribbean speech, and as far as Caribbean immigrants are concerned, London could well be another planet. The constant fog contributes to the recurring motifs of disillusionment and alienation felt by the characters throughout the novel. Their disorientation is best characterised by Henry, Henry Oliver, or also known as Sir Galahad, who arrives wearing a light summer suit during a bleak winter and appears surprised when asked if he isn't cold. Ironically, he only feels cold in the summer, and he's hot in the winter. By presenting Galahad in this way, Selvin establishes the dissimilitude of these immigrants by showing the reader how unprepared they are for the frosty English welcome. Selvin intimates through this imagery that, in this land shrouded by perpetual mystery, at some point, the characters are likely to have their illusions shattered. In the Caribbean, they consumed in large portions an idealised image of Englishness. This they were taught via the school curriculum, English literature and the imperial media, thus steeping London's landmarks with such mythical fantasy that England was marketed as their imperial home or their mother country. The choice of familiar tourist landmarks such as Marble Arch, Waterloo Station and Piccadilly Circus to chart the movement of the characters is deliberate, and their creolization is motivated by the subtle politics of language and naming. This has become a staple in post-colonial studies, and the importance of decolonizing the mind by Ngogi Wationgo shines through in the inversion of the colonial appropriation of the Caribbean, further explored by the power of naming in the initiation into the group of migrant Londoners. From the circus to the arch to the gate, they appropriated key landmarks for themselves, thus imprinting their own influence on the collective history of Britain. Moses educates Galahad when he says, which part you live in? In the water, Bayswater, until you're living in the city at least two years. Why do I call it Bayswater? Is it bay? Does it have water? Take it easy, Moses say. You can't learn everything in the first day you land. It's in this self-assured assertion of being and becoming through language that we find the community of the lonely Londoners. The creolization of the language firmly stakes the claims of the characters and their Englishness. However, this was defamiliarized and inflected by the diverse oral registers of the Caribbean. Although we are made aware of their individual nationalities, Selvin's characters exist beyond the need for identification with nation, class, ethnicity, religion or political conviction. Their collective experience is partly framed in the negative, by the racist exclusion from the good life of social and political participation. The regular opportunities to engage in old talk in Moses' old room on Sunday morning, 
with London and life on the outside, breathes new life into the experience while allowing them a fleeting moment of nostalgia. The Caribbean immigrants were welcomed by the cold weather and a newspaper reporter asking them why they couldn't stay in their home country. Selvan employs free indirect speech as the narrator enters Moses' thoughts, and when asked if he was a new arrival in Britain, Moses don't know, but he'd tell the fella yes. <laughs> Moses then recounts the blowing off of his roof during a hurricane that he was not present for. This opportunity then becomes a platform to inform the newspaper reporter that they are only getting the worst jobs and of the struggle to find suitable accommodation. This shift in and out of free and direct speech channels the narrative through Moses, allowing the reader to see the closeness of the relationship between narrator and character. Moses' encounter shows the reader that well-paid work for the Caribbean community was an illusion that he was sold prior to his arrival in Britain. Expectation is seldom the reality we inevitably end up living. That is not to say that all people arriving from the Caribbean thought the streets would be paved with gold, but certainly that would be part of the rebuilding process that was deliberately, desperately needed for post-war Britain. This illusion of prosperity is alluded to when Moses muses on the mindsets of the many, when he said, big headlines in the papers every day, and whatever the newspaper and the radio say in this country, that is the people bible. Like one time when the newspapers say the West Indians think that the streets of London are paved with gold, and a Jamaican fellow went to the income tax office to find out something, and the first thing the clerk tell him is, you people think the streets of London are paved with gold. Despite this, the community continued to work to form solid foundations in Britain, and have become one of the most successful communities to integrate into the fabric of British society. That is not to say that people like Selvan's Londoners do not encounter prejudice. It is to simply state that the Caribbean consciousness and identity has become more permanent, a more permanent part of the wider society. During Galahad's early days in London, Moses urges him to hustle a passage back home to Trinidad today due to the conflicts with large-scale immigration. Moses is nostalgic for the time when it only had a few West Indians in London and things used to go good enough. Moses' illusion of acceptance in Britain has been shattered as he explains the English people don't like the boys coming to England to work and live. Selvan employs a humorous tone to make light of their suffering, stating the politeness of the English rejection as old English diplomacy, which we could denote as being characteristic of the passive-aggressive culture employed by many Brits. The romanticised illusion of the history of England and their pre-acceptance into that history is another illusion that the reality of England shatters. Moses explains to Galahad that a Polish restaurant owner won't serve them due to their colour, despite the fact that they are, as Moses says, British subjects and he is just a foreigner. Moses' language here suggests the sense of injustice he feels, as it was the West Indians that bleed to make this country prosperous. He clearly feels that their position within the Commonwealth guaranteed integration. After all, they were part of the British sovereign. When you think about the context of Selvan's Londoners, they were living in a time in which recruitment from overseas British territories had been the norm. Since the 1930s, successive British governments had recruited doctors, nurses and other staff for the health service from overseas, with the 50s seeing the first mass recruitment waves coming from the Caribbean. In fact, in 1947, the colonial office dispatched an official to the Caribbean in order to dispel rumours of thousands of jobs being available. The major flaw in this plan was the ease of access that the communities had to British newspapers, and they could clearly see for themselves the vacancies that were flooding the classifieds. This surely must have felt like the greatest contradiction, and acted as a precursor to the environment that was soon due to arrive in.
Certainly Galahad experiences the fracturing of the illusion of the abundance of work as described by Dabazine and Tego Wilson, but perhaps not a shattering. An example of this can be found when Moses takes Galahad on the bus to the job centre, and Galahad sees for himself that work is nowhere near as prosperous as he thought. Firstly, the promise of plentiful work has proven to be a myth when Galahad enters the labour exchange and finds many people drawing help from the state. Galahad's earlier optimism of plenty work going is erased when the narrator informs the reader that Galahad had to stand up against the wall. The narrator's description of the labour exchange portrays an unfamiliar environment for Galahad, saying there is no place in the world for the one that they are in. There is no place in the world like the one that they are in. This illustrates the displacement, displacement and alienation Galahad would be feeling during his early days in London. Selvin's narrator employs free and direct speech again when stating, when you draw a little national assistance, it don't be so bad. This technique brings the reader closer to the scene using focalization. As the paragraph progresses, the tone of the language darkens and the narrator describes the desperation of the unemployed. Selvin uses a simile to compare their situation to fish out of water and the men losing their jobs saying it's like the world ends. The narrator observes the fragility of the job situation in England when he states that a job is all the security a man have. The poor economic state of England is shown as the men in the room are beaten into submission and become willing to take any job. Galahad is faced with the same proposition by Moses who informs him he will find work when, the off when he tells the office he will accept anything for the time being. Nick Bentley finds evidence in such passages of how Selvan highlights the perpetuation of everyday racism in the institutions which not only pit black and white Londoners against each other, they also foreclose the possibilities of a joint political movement which could take on matters of systematic racial discrimination. Neither trade unions, nor leftist organisations, nor the Labour Party really provided a platform and an outlet for black politics in the 1950s, and black individuals were therefore marginalised not only from mainstream white culture, but also from the primary bodies of opposition to dominant power frameworks. Moses singles out an old English fella to illustrate a problem that does not only affect them. The gentleman has been signing on since Moses visited last, and he does only draw dull. By highlighting the problem as one that affects everybody, not just the Caribbean immigrants, Selvin presents a shattering of the illusion of England's wealth and the promise of an abundance of work. Galahad faces the shattering of the illusion that West Indians will be readily accepted by the English. Moses seems to take on board English prejudice and uses it as a learning tool for Galahad. And this can be seen in the labelling of the forms to find out which firms want coloured fellas. Moses describes this in, in a matter-of-fact tone, giving the impression that this is a normal occurrence and something to just live with. They end most drastically on the housing and job markets and the discriminations there are translated into institutional policies on all levels, from schools to unions to government institutions. In a revealing incident, Moses explains to Galahad how West Indians are filed at the labour exchange. As Moses says, Now on all the records of the boys, you'll see a mark in the top in red ink, J.A. Col. That means you're from Jamaica and you're black. So that puts the clerks in the know right away, you see. Suppose a vacancy come up and they want to send a fella. First, they will find out if the firm want coloured fellas before they send you. That saves a lot of time and bother, you see. Now, we can juxtapose this with the real-life experiences of many Caribbean immigrants arriving on the British shores at the time. 
Since the first 492 men arrived on the 22nd of June in 1948 on board the Windrush, they were kept on the very fringes of society. The Commonwealth members best observed from a distance, like that one family member at the party that causes embarrassment, usually by revealing the truth hidden in the room. The presence of the Caribbean community in Britain was a physical reminder of the reach of empire, a memory that has been distorted and papered over on many occasions. As jobs became harder to find, Galahad was forced to catch and eat a pigeon just to survive the harsh winter. The reality of the lack of English, England's humanitarianism is laid bare as the narrator explains that people prefer to see a man starve. Showing his empathy to the plight of Galahad. With the pigeon incident, we are shown two opposed views of the world. This difference is underlined by Moses' remonstrant remonstrance to Galahad, and even when his characters undergo in such extreme circumstances, Selvin captures the humour in the situation. Boy, you take a big chance. You think this is Trinidad? Then pigeons there to beautify the park, not to eat. The people over here will kill you if you touch a fly. It could be said that although Galahad goes through such times in England, his illusions aren't completely shattered, evidenced as he opposes Moses' grumblings about the British life. Galahad states that if you ain't do well, it's nobody's fault but your own. Galahad is presented as accepting his new life in England, showing Moses to have suffered the most from shattered illusions. Galahad is proving more adept to adapting to British culture. He shows his understanding of the impression of the English people, and the papers always talking and creating problems, putting forward his case that the problems Moses faces are likely exacerbated by the press. The Lonely Londoners explores the psychological effects of this double marginalisation in beautifully crafted yet painful prose passages which break through the kif-kif laughter on the surface of the narrative. In a particularly moving episode, Galahad explains his own theory about black at night, following an episode where a child shouts, Mummy, look at that black man in the street, and starts crying. Galahad would take his hand from under the blanket, as he lay there studying how the night before he was in the lavatory and two white fellas came in and say how these black bastards have the lavatory dirty, and he didn't know he was there. And when he come out they say, hello mate, have a cigarette. And Galahad watched the colour of his hand and talked to it saying, colour, it's you that causing all this you know. Why the hell you can't be blue or red or green if you can't be white? You know it's you that cause a lot of misery in the world. It's not me, you know. It's you. I ain't do nothing to infuriate the people in them. It's you. Look at you. So black and innocent. And this time you're causing such misery all over the world. So Galahad talking to the colour black. As if a person. Telling her that it's not he who caused all the botheration in the place. But black. Who is a worthless thing for making trouble all about. This passage resonates beautifully with Franz Fanon's furiously poetic analyses of the psychopathologies of race in post-war France and Paris, in particular in Black Skin, White Masks, first published in 1952. Although it first appeared in English in 1967, the parallels specifically between Fanon's chapter on the fact of blackness and Galahad's meditations are difficult to miss. Fanon develops his notion of a bodily schema via describing the habitual act of reaching for and holding a cigarette. He describes how corresponding concepts of self are shattered by the overdetermining scripts of history and race written into the black skin and triggered in a moment of white ideology. As Fanon writes, Mama, see the Negro, I'm frightened. 
How the corporal schema crumbles under the sheer weight of white legend stories history, of tom-toms, cannibalism, intellectual deficiency, fetishism, racial defects, slave ships, and above all, shogun. And Fanon too notes, one day I took myself far from my own presence, far indeed, and made myself an object, relating self to black body in the third person. It is tempting on these grounds to interpret the various compensating strategies of the diverse cast of the Lonely Londoners through the lens of Fanon, to pathologise characters like Galahad and Harris who strive to escape the infernal circle of racist overdetermination by becoming more English than the English, unlike Tanti, who tries instead to convert the motherland into her own personal community. Or to pathologise characters like Cap or Five Past Twelve who embrace and project the racist stereotypes of blackness they encounter, a strategy which Fanon also identifies in the strategic essentialisms of the Negritude movement. Despite interpreting this novel, novel imbued with many experiences, this does not do justice to the novel's complexity, which is grounded in historical realities of London in the 1940s and the 1950s, and which is, on one level, a realist text. However, this realism is intentionally challenged by the conflicting narrative modes which complicate any straightforward notion of social and psychological verisimilitude. Again, Dabidine and Tego Wilson state that all the dreams are painfully destroyed. This doesn't appear to be completely true. Again, for example, Tanti seems to weave herself into the culture fairly comfortably. She seems upbeat about her new life in London. She is able to have social time with other women, getting on just as if they're in the marketplace back home. And even the English people call her Shitanti thus creating a comfortable domestic scene abroad. Her excursion to gain the key to the pantry shows her learned knowledge of London's intricate transport system. Though Tanti never went on the tube, she was like those people who feel familiar with the thing just by reading about it. Other than misnaming Great Portland Street and nervously telling the bus conductor, I hope this bus don't turn over, she displays confidence within her new surroundings. Tanti is characterised as resilient and confident, contrasting Galahad's feeling of displacement and most certainly contradicting Dabidine and Tego Wilson's generalised statement. That feeling of community acceptance was something sorely lacking in Britain in the late 1940s, and so Tanti's creation of one was a taste of home that was not only for her benefit, but for the other members of the community that were trying to acclimatise themselves to the frosty British culture. Sam Selvin's novel illustrates how some of the illusions of Caribbean immigrants' lives in England were shattered. While Moses' illusions were certainly shattered, Galahad seems to accept the problems and shows optimism for his future. Other characters, such as Harris, adapted well to their new lives in London and appeared to thrive. His close narrative technique gives an intimate account of the Caribbean immigrants. Selvin's gentle handling of the characters shows the narrator and vicariously Selvin loves the characters and wishes them success against the odds. Selvin was able to capture the mood of London in the 1950s, a mood both desperate and gloomy, and an environment in which just scraping a living was an achievement. Yet beyond such degrees of authorial reflexivity, it's a, it is vital not to take the larger narrative at face value. As John T.M. has elaborated, The Lonely Londoners is a carnival text in that it subverts the norms of the dominant tradition of Western fiction by instating the oral over the literary. The inversion of colonial power relations which Dawson talks about and which is intricately played out among other fields in the performance of gender relations is thus part of a larger generic strategy, a decolonial strategy deeply rooted in the carnival mentality in Trinidad, 
which, as long as it is a genuine expression of the culture in the marketplace, provides through parody, subversion and irony, a source of renewal. The way his characters navigated their new city, both played into and mocked the stereotypes of Caribbean and African migrants of the time, whilst highlighting the dangers of navigating a hostile new territory. Texts like these, literature in English, not specifically English literature, are windows into worlds little known to many and are welcome voices in the literary world. This text formed part of my undergraduate study, and I've barely scratched the surface of depth of this book through this episode. Whilst we are seeing more diversity creeping into our universities, there is still a very long way to go in our primary and secondary schools. This is a change in focus we must take, as it will reflect the ever more diverse classrooms our children are learning in. One of my earliest memories of discovering literature that spoke to me was when I discovered an Anansi story whilst in, I believe, year one at primary. From that moment on, I loved the stories of Anansi, and as I've grown, I've discovered more about his roots, more about my own, and after many dark teenage years, saw where my place is in this multicultural country, alongside where in the world my work may take me. Literature has the power to open your mind to the rest of the world. It equally has the power to direct your thinking to your own world, and to take you on the most incredible journey of self-discovery. So for all the educators listening, I implore you to take a look at your bookshelves, those at home, in your classrooms, in your staff rooms, in your libraries. Take a look and ask yourself, does this reflect where I am living? Have my own biases and influences limited the literary worlds I expose myself and those around me too? If the answer is yes, maybe it's time to decolonize your bookshelf and vicariously your classroom and your mind. Thank you for listening to today's show. And if you'd like to join in the discussion, please email me, jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter as Coloured Souls UK. To be notified of every time a new episode goes live, please hit that subscribe button on your favourite podcast app or visit coloredsouls.co.uk forward slash podcast. If you'd like to contribute to the ongoing production of this show, then please buy me a book. Uh, Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash coloured souls. Thank you again for listening and I'll speak with you soon.